singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a feature of Singularity Weblog, and if you want to support the show, you can do that in one of two ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Professor Ted Chu. Ted is a professor of economics and a former chief economist for GM. Most recently, Dr. Chu is the author of Human Purpose and Transhuman Potential, a cosmic vision for our future evolution. And uh, this is uh, Ted's book. I've been enjoying it for the last uh, probably four days very much, and, and I think it's a profound book that's really dazzling in, in the way it encompasses almost everything in the universe uh, while drawing on a spectacular amount of both philosophical uh, and scientific uh, works by a number of other people. So, so I have to say it's probably not the easiest read in the world. It, it's actually quite intellectually sophisticated but it's definitely a journey worth uh, undertaking. It's definitely worth reading, and it's uh, very rewarding in sort of the perspective, the cosmic perspective that it lays out for the reader and, and in the way that it kind of places out the place of humanity as collectively and us perhaps individually within that cosmic context that we're going to be discussing today. So. Uh, without further ado, hi Ted and uh, welcome on Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Well, thank you, Nicola. Thank you very much for inviting me to your program. Uh, it's my pleasure to be uh, speaking uh, with you and talking about my book. Uh, here uh, we have perfect weather in Abu Dhabi, so it's it's great uh, time to, uh, to be sharing uh, with you some of my thoughts. Fantastic. And, and... You do have some very interesting and very well uh, written and laid out thoughts, I, I have to say. So let's let's jump right in. But before that, let me ask you, Ted, can you please uh, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do for those of us who may not be familiar with you and your work? Okay. Yes, I was uh, born and raised in China. I moved to the U.S. to study economics at Georgetown University in the early uh, 90s and uh, uh, then uh, after that I I uh, started a business career I've been doing this for 25 years uh, most recently uh, chief economist for Abu Dhabi Investment Authority one of the sovereign wealth funds uh, at the same time I started my second career about 15 years ago uh, in preparation for writing this book so this is this book has been I've been working on it for the last 15 years. That's fascinating. So let me ask you this. How and why did you get interested in issues such as transhumanism so that you ended up working on that topic in your spare time for 15 years, as you said? Yes, many people wondered about that. I'm a professional economist, so why I'm writing this book, right, has little, very little to do with economics. Uh, it's a long story, but to keep it short, I think it's both for personal motivations and also professional motivations. Uh, I had a midlife crisis at age 29. <laughs> <laughs> 
before that, uh, my life was a smooth sailing uh, from first grade all the way to college. I was never second in class. And I was lucky enough in my junior year to want a free scholarship to study in the U.S. at Georgetown, uh, where the uh, intuition is uh, $30,000 a year. At that time, my parents were making about $60 a month. So think about that great opportunity. I jumped on it and uh, was able to finish my PhD program. I landed on several jobs that I really love, including working on the environmental issues, climate change, uh, working uh, to help uh, poor countries to really advance. Uh, one of the countries, unfortunately, is Ukraine. So today is still in a mess, but I was really having a good, good life, uh, family life, social life, everything was so good. And then suddenly one night I woke up uh, in a uh, cold sweat. All of a sudden, it seems like everything I'm doing, I was doing was meaningless. It seems like I was headed somewhere but I was also headed nowhere. So that caused me to look into the, the meaning of human life. I, hope, time, I wish a lot more economists had that kind of life-changing experience. <laughs> <laughs> Usually they don't ever second guess themselves. But anyway, that's, we'll talk about that a little later. Go on, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yes, so uh, I started to do philosophical research, and um, my wife was really unhappy about that, uh, saying that you should do more economic research. Why did you start to do philosophical research? And I used the excuse of, I'm now being promoted to the manager of global economy. I need to look at the fundamental causes of human growth. So the project really started from a personal crisis, existential crisis. It's like everything's going so well, but then what's the meaning of this everything, right? You can see the end uh, of my life and doesn't seem to be very meaningful, uh, even though it's a very, has been a very, very enjoyable life. Then I started to looking at the social issues and I started to associate the existence of humanity and the fundamental consequences and meanings of economic system and to say what this is, is all about. Where is human being heading forward? So I spent several years um, on living on campus uh, of Wayne State University, reading about one book a day, uh, just trying to really figure this out for several years. Um, my wife said, no, we have young kids. You can't quit your job. So this is what I did. It started a second career about 15 years ago. Uh, I started to writing down things um, in about uh, uh, 1999 and, and, and 2000, and then 9-11 um, hit. I was personally uh, uh, kind of the, uh, a huge shock. I happened to be attending a conference in the World Trade Center, and when it collapsed, I was lucky enough to escape, but not my manuscript. So I left my manuscript in my bag and was in my hotel room in World Trade Center Tower 3, and that was destroyed. For the first time in my life, I had this setback that I never experienced before. I feel like this may be a test for my will to see whether what I was doing is meaningful or not. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, my wife again asked me, saying that, 
well, should you continue to do your research or not? Seems like maybe you should not. And I told her that I will continue to watch the latest development. I will continue to read the books. And if there is one book that appear that shared my same insights, I will stop it right away because personally, I really have nothing to gain from doing this kind of research, from writing down my thoughts. In about 2003, one night I woke up and had just the opposite experience of my initial kind of the midlife crisis of woke up in total darkness. I woke up in total brightness. The entire room just brightens up. For whatever reason, I just felt like everything is so clear to me. Everything became so clear to me. And at that moment, I decided that I wanted to publish my thoughts. The book was finished in 2007, and then the global financial crisis hit. General Motors was in trouble. I was involved in uh, working, to, working through the entire process of saving the corporation, working 60 hours a week, was really struggling, and the book project was put aside. And then in 2010, I jumped on, on the opportunity of joining Abu Dhabi Investment Authority to be their chief economist. I moved from the U.S. to here, Abu Dhabi. Uh -huh. And that was an entirely new job. I had to be working really hard on the job so that the book project was delayed again. Uh -huh. But again and again, I tell my wife that if somebody published something that have this exact same message, same insight, I will stop right away. And that so far hasn't happened. So far, what has happened is that some of my thoughts that when taking a look back 15 years ago was kind of the weird, right? It was so far out. Why are you thinking about these things? I'm seeing more and more signs that things are coming my way. Uh -huh. Things are falling into places for the cosmic vision to be realized. Okay, let me clarify a couple of, of points here in your very interesting, fascinating personal story. So you wake up, you have a mid midlife crisis at 29. You wake up kind of like and asking yourself this profound philosophical question. What's the meaning of all of this? What's the purpose? I mean, I can pretty much foresee the end of my life, but what's the point, right? Exactly. So I understand that. What I don't understand is how do you make the connection to transhumanism from there on? Because some people in your situation would have found God, for example, mm -hmm. right? They would be reborn yes. Christians, reborn Buddhists. Uh, I don't know, something else. People find all kinds of different answers to their questions. Why did you hook to the idea of transhumanism in particular, and how did that happen? Mm, yes. It was a slow process. I have an Eastern education. I was immersed in the Eastern tradition, and I was an atheist at the time, yeah. or agnostic, you would say. So the first step I started out was to look at the human wisdom which I wrote in chapter four of the book, right? The chapter four of the book is about human wisdom. And I started out to say, okay, I understand what the Eastern sages were saying. And I, what I don't understand is the Western civilization and the Western wisdom. So that's where really I really get started mm -hmm. into looking at the issues. But how, how, 
how come I become fascinated with transhumanism and the humanity's future is due to the fact that I want to relate my personal experience with the experience that the human beings as a whole have been living through. So when you read the Bible, when you read the Tao Te Ching, you will see the process of coming from very simple ideas, from a very simple picture to a more complex picture. And I think we are a continuation uh, process and that makes me think we are not the peak, but maybe we're in the transitory phase and what is the next phase? So I was getting attracted to the transhumanism literature. However, I found the transhuman literature to be sorely lacking in terms of the philosophical foundation. I couldn't agree more with you. And, and so, but let me ask you again to be even more specific than that so that we can nail it down. What was the book, the first book, the first idea, the first occasion that you got exposed to those transhumanist ideas? How did you make the connection? How did you find out about it? Mm. So it was the internet. I was uh, reading through literature and I found writings of Ray Kurzweil. I found writings of uh, 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 other uh, transhumanism uh, uh, researchers. Uh, I don't recall the, the exact uh, same, uh, exact the first article where I touched upon that word, but uh, it was a gradual process. But it was a broadening process. I was also reading history, was reading the uh, technology, uh, technological uh, theories, reading the theory of mind, uh, reading the uh, uh, genetic basis of human beings, reading uh, evolutionary psychology. I was reading, I was going all directions. I didn't know where I'm going to be headed toward. Mm -hmm. It was in much, much later time, uh, like I said, one night, I suddenly find that I see everything. I, I, it, it's so clear to me that it was the happiest moment in my life, and I want to share this with with whoever is interested uh, in the meaning of our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it, uh, I was trying to see if, if, for example, the extropian circles and forums played some role, and and perhaps the writings of Max Moore or FM Twenty Thirty or yes. the work and of Natasha, Natasha Whittemore. Yes. All these people, yes, all of their, uh, all of their um, uh, research, uh, I've, I'm very familiar with, and and uh, uh, got me into thinking about uh, mm -hmm. the the issues that I that I address in the book. Mm -hmm. But but in a way, you also kind of self-discovered it, which which in a way is probably what happens to most of us, and and it's I mean it's 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 the the process of learning is is in a way self-discovery or a mm -hmm. discovery of a kind. Uh, and what's fascinating about you and your book is, is as I said, it's the scope and the breadth of, of your research. So I can see how you've been going in all kinds of directions and, and it was hard at the time, but now looking backwards in retrospect, you can actually draw upon all those ideas and all those diverse resources and pull them in all together and sort of make sense of them all, which is fascinating. And the other interesting feature about your book is that it's the first sort of east-west bridge with respect to transhumanism that I know of. So clearly uh, you were brought up in sort of the, the eastern philosophy realm, but I was impressed equally by your depth of knowledge of western philosophy. I mean, as somebody who grew up in sort of and was educated in the western tradition, mm. I was impressed by your knowledge uh, of, of western philosophy. 
uh, and and your knowledge of Eastern philosophy too, but especially the West and how you managed to bring them together. That was fascinating to me. And that's why I think that's another reason why I enjoyed the book so much is because it's it was a big surprise for me. Uh, you know, I've read three or four books so far written by economists on topics uh, of transhumanism and or the technological singularity. And mm -hmm. they're all good in a way, but none of, of them manages to go you know, a tenth as far as your book goes, or as deep in terms of the breadth and the scope of it. Um, mm. and, and as I said, it's not an easy read. I mean, it took me about four days to read, and I usually go through books in one or two days. Your took about four days. Uh, so it, it takes a bit of digestion. It's very dense, uh, but it's not, it doesn't read like a book written by an economist. It, it reads by a book written by a philosopher to me. Uh, that's that's another reason why I enjoyed it so much and why I think it's so important and so profound. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little yes. bit about the importance of philosophy and mm -hmm. why, foundationally speaking, your book, in my view, I would make the claim is philosophical. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I want to uh, thank two of my former colleagues, uh, Tom Walton and Mike, Michael Winnehan, uh, in helping me to introduce me into Western philosophy. Um, we, for many years, we had a, a lunch, um, share a lunch on, on Monday, and we share our thoughts, uh, our readings uh, over the weekend, and uh, they continue to critique me and uh, saying that, Ted, you need to read this book. Ted, you need to read that book. And gradually, things coming together. Now, um, you comment that, on the fact that the book is very dense, and indeed it is. Um, Mike Winningham keep uh, uh, while reading my draft, he keep he kept saying that uh, Ted, you know, each chapter of your book is a book. I totally right? agree. So, so, so why don't you write many books? You know, you're putting way too much into one book. And here's and you my can argument. tell by reading it, and you can tell it's not the book that you wrote in a year, but it took a long period of, as you said, 15 years yes. for it to sort of crystallize and come all together. Yes, correct. So uh, my, my counter argument is that uh, uh, I want to send a message out, and the message is that humanity needs to be a higher goal. And this is a very broad question, right? So you cannot make a single argument in order to convince people. So you need to go in all directions to paint the picture. So that this is my argument, and and, and also, and, and also to the uh, thanks to my editors that uh, saying that the book is too big. So the original draft is way too long. It was over a thousand pages. My so the book you, you, <laughs> yes. So the book you have now is is about four hundred pages um, uh, in terms of the text. And, and I think you know, boiling boiling down the process, it also crystal, crystal crystallized my mind, and hopefully the readers will find it manageable, even though it remains a very complex book. Yeah, and it, yeah. I would say, it, to my mind, it's it's a book on par of Ray Kurzweil's *The Singularity Is Near*, which is very substantial, very scientifically backed book, and, and you just Thank like him have hundreds of notes in the end many, many pages, probably like, what, 60 pages worth of of notes and references? No, yes, I'm lying. It's more like 70, yeah, 85 pages of notes, my goodness, and references. Thanks. So, yeah. 
and maybe it's even a little bit above Ray Kurzweil's book in a way, in, in some ways, in, in the way that it goes actually investigating the sort of the cosmological ramifications and, and, and the focus on the human per se, a little bit more than, than perhaps Ray's, even though it's been probably, what, six or seven years since I read his book last. So, but, but yeah, I, yeah. I think it's at least on par with his. So, well, thank you. Yeah. Yes. I'm. I'm not as smart as uh, Ray Kurzweil. Uh, I don't know how long uh, it it uh, took him to write his book, but I, but I'm slow, uh, and uh, so it, it it took me 15 years uh, in uh, coming up with, with with this book. Well, I know that Ray Kurzweil did have a whole team helping him with some of the research uh, on the book and and stuff like that. I actually know some of the people uh, that helped him in the process. Uh, Catherine uh, was, uh, for example, she's on uh, the team of Singularity University right now, a, a fantastic person. And, and she mm -hmm. said that uh, it's probably the second or the third project of all her life so far was, was helping Ray with his book. Uh, oh. And of course, the number one biggest project she's done was Singularity University, but the book comes like right after it. So uh, ah. that, that, that's only to say that it was a, a huge, huge project. Uh, and she's one of those meticulous people who goes about data and about the graphs and about the economics and, and all of those things in, in a very meticulous, accurate way. Mm. Uh, but anyway, uh, let, me, let me go back to our topic here and ask you, so what is human purpose and transhuman potential about? What is your book about? Yes. So to boil it down, I think it's, about one message and that message is we need to have a higher goal what is the human purpose and what is the meaning and why we wanted what what we wanted to do is i suggest that we need to go beyond our go current goal of maximizing human well-being so when you look at political science economics any social discussion we all wanted to maximize GDP. We all wanted to live in a harmonious society, peaceful society, sustainable environment. All this was a implicit, and I think it's a conventional wisdom goal of what the meaning of our life is we want to have a better human life. And this book suggests that this is a very noble goal, and this is, should be an everyday goal. But presented with the opportunity to go beyond, I think we need to have a higher goal. And that higher goal is to think about human purpose in the cosmic context rather than in a human social context. And think about the human species as a transitional species. And think about how do we get the ultimate freedom, the freedom from our biological bondages to get to the post-human world where the human spirit can be exemplified. Mm -hmm. I think that's the message. We need a higher goal. And and in support of what you just said, I just want to read a long paragraph here, but I think it's pivotal for sort of presenting the thesis of the book or the gist of it to our listeners and viewers. So uh, in your author's preface, you say, quote, the time has come for men to set himself a goal. The time has come for men to plant the seed of his highest hope. And that's a quote by Nietzsche. And then you continue to say, this book is an attempt to plant that seed, 
to articulate a goal and a purpose for humanity in an age of unprecedented technological breakthroughs and previously unimaginable potential for evolutionary progress. I believe and intend to demonstrate in this book that we are reaching a threshold or tipping point in our rev evolutionary path that is as radical as appearance, uh, as as radical as the appearance countless eons ago of the first biological cell on Earth. The result will be a revolutionary jump in the growth of complexity and liveliness in the entire universe. Looking at the big picture of cosmic evolution since the Big Bang, at least that which we can infer, I am convinced that our purpose is to transcend our limiting biology and the resulting limitations in our consciousness, thus enabling the rise of new kinds of sentient beings freed from our genetic limitations in the pursuit of the highest transcendental aspirations and the promotion of cosmic evolution. I, I absolutely was like flabbergasted by that kind of opening and, and really enjoyed it. It's very dense, but it, it's, it's really meaningful. And I think, uh, you you keep on building there after from from that opening of the book so thank you Nathan. let me let me ask you perhaps to make things a little bit easier for us by defining your understanding of the term transhumanism yes so i have discussed this issue with many people and they say why do you want to abandon humanity, right? Going into a really weird and <laughs> potentially terrifying, potentially terrifying future. And my answer is that we're not gonna be abandoning humanity going forward. Entering this post-human world is actually gonna be really, really developing human spirit, really, really developing the highest realizing the highest aspiration of humanity. Of course, human beings is a very complex entity. And how do you define human beings? You can say, oh, okay, well, this is we are defined by our biological being. We're defined by our genes. Or you can say we are defined by what we can do. And I would like to define human beings by our potential. And when you look at uh, the, all millions and millions of biological species on Earth, we are very unique in the sense that we are the only species that is aware of the existence of the cosmos. And we are the only species that got to have the understanding of where, where we came from. Right? It was only very recent, but now I think there is overwhelming scientific evidence that the universe started out with a Big Bang. And we have been going from simple to more complex, from no mind to mind, from simple mind to a conscious mind. So to say that, you know, the universe just existed, just existed randomly, there is no purpose, or to argue that we are the end of the evolution, you know, we are the chosen people by God, and we are the, the, the pinnacle evolu evolution, I think it's, it's a limiting thought. So in that sense, I think we need to put our existence and our purpose into a larger context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you even preempted my other question about what is human. So, so yeah. you, you answered that already by, by saying that we should be defined by, 
by our potential. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me ask you about uh, another very important term that you bring and you or you coin in your book, and that's Kobe. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what Kobe stands for and what it means? Yes, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, Kobe has multiple meanings. It was the the name of the uh, NASA satellite that uh, we confirmed the. Uh, the uh, Big Bang, the, 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 the cosmological background uh, uh, noise that reconfirmed the Big Bang event. It also means that it is cosmic being, of course, straightforward. It also has the me meaning of could be, right? So could be, C-O-U-L-D, and B-E is our potential. So at least that has three meanings. And for me, Kobe is the being that is on the cosmological evolutionary frontier. So let's say 3.7 billion years ago, you know, it, it is the estimated uh, started of life on Earth. At that time, the single cell uh, bacteria is the Kobe. And later on, of course, when the first animal appeared, that is the Kobe, and so on and so forth. And I believe today humanity is the Kobe because we stand on the frontier of the cosmic evolution. But in the future, that is going to change. And our aspiration ought to be, we will be the creator of the next cosmic being. That is going to be more advanced, more capable, do more things that uh, we cannot do, and accomplish more things that humanity have ever, ever dreamed of accomplishing. So this is my concept of Kobe. It, it is a being on the frontier. It's a dynamic concept. And I'm suggesting that we are Kobe right now, but at some point we will no longer be the Kobe. And that point is when we have the post-human future. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So what would you say to people who would reply to that, that what you're saying in other ways is that humanity is going to go extinct? <laughs> uh, not quite, uh, because when you look at uh, the life's history or cultural history uh, in the human civilization, uh, we're always going to have the latest. Right? We're always going to have the things that's on the frontier. But of course, you have some species that has been in, ex in existence for 500 million years, 600 million years. What is important is not that we're going to be extinct or we are not going to be extinct uh, as a specific biological species. What is important is that if you're not on the frontier, you largely become irrelevant. Even, you can, even if you continue to exist, you will largely become irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, whether we become extinct is a narrow definition question. I think the bigger question is, can we create the next cosmic being? If we can't create the next cosmic being, then even though we as a biological species no longer exist, I would say our spirit will be exist, will, will be continuing on and our spirit will actually be greater than the spirit that we have right now. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, actually, another fascinating foundational sort of idea that kind of underpins the whole structure foundationally speaking of your whole book is the idea of evolution darwin's 
theory of yes. evolution. Can you yes. tell us a little bit more about that and how it fits in the sort of the skeleton of your argument? Yes, um, I believe this is the, the the idea of evolution is the best idea that human beings have ever came upon. And, and, and I discuss it in detail in the book, but in a nutshell, I think it gives us a not only a dynamic aspect that nothing is frozen over time, everything is con is going to continue to change, but also give us a almost a God's eye, if you will, of looking at the entire process and putting the current state of humanity into proper context and understanding that what we have gained is tremendous, but what is possible next is even greater. So, so I think this is the significance of the, uh, of the concept of evolution. By the way, I also mentioned in the book that uh, I think, you know, even, even though it, it has been two, 250 years after Darwin originally published his book, I think his idea of evolution is still largely uh, misunderstood, even by many scholars, that even Darwin envisioned that we are not going to be frozen. Even Darwin, at, at his time, envisioned that there could be higher beings coming after us mm -hmm. based on the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a very important point to, 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 to send out there, to, to send that message. Uh, but 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 let me let me give you a counter sort of a little counter argument if you will. Douglas mm -hmm. Adams, one of my most uh, favorite uh, science fiction writers, uh, once said that we are basically infinitely small specks on an infinitely small speck in an endless universe. Now you are claiming that we have a cosmic sort of potential or fate, maybe even. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we may not be the pinnacle evol of evolution, but we are perhaps a vital step within the unfolding of that cosmic process. Mm. Is that not hubris of cosmic proportion? <laughs> in a sense, maybe it is. Uh, in a sense, I totally agree with him that we are so insignificant that our existence in the context of the cosmos, almost seems like it's uh, what I call it, uh, you know, a, a little bubble in the vast ocean. It's so small, and uh, the bubble is gonna pop, right? It, a, a bubble it cannot last forever. It's a very, very transitory existence in the vast ocean of the cosmos. However, uh, to use a imperfect analogy, think about the first biological cell on Earth. That cell. You know, we still don't uh, have a good understanding of where it came from, but the existence of that original cell is so insignificant compared with the entire liveliness of what we have on Earth right now. But it started from there, started from a single spot where Darwin jokingly said it's appeared in some small warm ponds. <laughs> right? uh, right now for me is like that single cell on earth three billion years ago and that cell grown into such a such a a wonderful ecosystem on earth with thriving lives and later intelligence 
And I hope we will do the same, not for the earth, of course, but for the entire cosmos. And in that sense, the human, human beings are the cosmic beings and truly a cosmic being. But what if we're just one among many, many beings that came to be, become intelligent in the endless universe? Uh, and another alternative is also, what if our little bubble pops up indeed? I mean, there could be all kinds of extinction level events that basically wipe out our civilization. We're so fragile. Yes, uh, indeed. And then uh, the universe would not be able to meet its fate, according to your argument. Yes, they, um, uh, nobody knows the future. And uh, in the book, I talked about uh, four future scenarios, and, and, and these two outcomes are quite plausible. Uh, it, it's quite uh, plausible that there are even more advanced intelligence somewhere else in the universe. It's quite plausible that uh, uh, at some point, uh, uh, life and intel intelligence uh, could be completely wiped out without developing the next stage of uh, evolution. And all these possibilities for me only means one thing. That is, we need to work hard. The, the, the findings of recent uh, science and technology indicates that our consciousness do play a role. We do have free will. So in the sense that the biblical message of we are the chosen, you can say it's a, it's a faith, but I can also say that it is a very powerful message. Whether you decide to take that message or not is entirely up to you. But I firmly believe when you look at history, those who have faith in themselves, those who are willing to take responsibility, even in the face of a lot of adversity and risk, tend to prevail at the end. Uh -huh. So one had to wonder, right? One has to wonder why through so many mass extinctions and with 99.9% .9 of species went extinct, why life on Earth never perished once it, it, it appeared soon after the Earth was formed, and why life and intelligence continue to thrive? We had to answer that question. Uh -huh. Very good. So, so let me ask you about the other uh, sort of underpinning here that you talk about a lot in the book, and that's the importance of ethics and morality and even religion and faith that you just mm -hmm. mentioned. So mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about your ethical foundation, personally speaking, as well as your religious outlook, and how is that interplay in your self-working? Yes, uh, one, one of the reviewers of, uh, of my book uh, at IET recently uh, uh, half-jokingly called my message as religion 2.0. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth to it because I wanted to have a higher goal than humanity and that for some people, that's religion. My view of morality is this. I think today's human morality is related to the human nature and the all the religious traditions or intellectual traditions philosophical traditions all come down to one point which is called the golden rule and the golden rule says you don't do to others that others don't want to others don't don't do uh you don't do to, to others what others you don't want others to do to you 
or uh, uh, it can be restated as that that you should treat others exact the same way as the others you would like others to treat you. So it, this is kind of equal, mm -hmm. equality kind of concept. And I believe this is a very good uh, moral standard uh, with all the you know ex uh, uh, specific uh, moral guidance coming out of this big overarching golden rule. I think this is a very good uh, moral standard. And, I, and uh, it's no strange that it has been the guidance the, the the overarching guidance for humanity for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. However, when you are thinking in when you are thinking about humanity in the cosmic context, I think the golden rule is very limiting because it is it is only applicable uh, towards the your fellow beings. Right? So this sets the behavioral standard. Yeah, what you should do regarding fellow human beings when the other beings or even superior beings are being created. I don't think the current moral standards are sufficient. So that is why in the book, I proposed a new moral standard. I call this transcendental morality. And it can be, can be summarized in very easy to understand language, which is uh, try to put yourself into others' shoes. Now, of course, that rule incorporates the golden rule, right? Because don't put, try to put yourself in other people's shoes. But not only that, I think we should try to put ourselves into other animals' shoes, try to put ourselves into super intelligence shoes, and maybe ultimately try to put ourselves into the shoes of the creator of the universe. From that standpoint, then the faith or religion will stand at the highest level. This highest level actually has been achieved in all the world's greatest uh, monolithic religions as well as Eastern philosophies. Uh -huh. And that, what is that highest standard? That highest standard is how can we be one with the universe? And this is the morality, transcendental morality, I think we need to promote. The golden rule will not be sufficient for the post-human future. Mm -hmm. that, that's absolutely fascinating, Darren. And let me play devil's advocate and push you a little bit here. Now, I can see how I can try and put myself somewhat, somewhat in the shoes of like lower intelligence beings. Even though, as we know, people have written articles about, for example, what it's like to be a bat and can you ever imagine what it is to be a bat? Because the idea is that you can only imagine what it is to be a bat from the human being point of view, but you can never actually be a bat unless you are a bat. Mm. And I would say that even goes to be more true when we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of higher intelligence beings, right? So mm -hmm. can a goldfish put itself in the shoes of a human being, for example? Right. And mm -hmm. at that point, perhaps we are going to be the goldfish and the super intelligences, the post humans will be eons above us. And therefore, how could we even begin to try and put ourselves in their shoes if they mm -hmm. even have shoes? <laughs> yes. Good question. Um, the what makes us uh, quite unique among uh, all the animals 
uh, on Earth is that we have we have this so-called consciousness, and when you look at it at the lower level, we have a massive amount of neurons that is called the mirror neurons. So what does the mirror neuron do? Well, the mirror neuron is trying to mimic the external reality. And I totally agree with you that our current capabilities to mimic and then thus to understand and thus to be able to judge things based on the external point of view are still somewhat limited. That said, we are so much, much better equipped to understand other people's perspective than all the ever all the other lives that have have we have ever known. And I suggest that the the highest uh, the highest perspective or the perspectives that I mentioned in the chapter on human wisdom is really we're trying to understand the God's view. If you can understand the God's view or you can understand uh, Tao, right? whatever, you know, based on your religious background or your faith, is what is the highest level? I think once you understand that, that everything else just falls into place. Mm -hmm. Whether you truly understand what the bad feels is becomes less important. What's important is you need to understand Tao, you need to understand God. And you say, how do we ever do that with our limited amount of brain? And I think there are two approaches to do that. The first is we need to rely on technology. We need to rely on other tools that, for example, now we truly understand how the bat sees things, right? Not through our intuitive mind, but through our rational mind. So this is one approach. The second approach is really trying to make sure that we are able to create better beings in the future. And once we do that, we have the faith that they will understand better than we do. A lot of people ask me, you know, what, what is the end of the universe? Do you know? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't want to even speculate about this. But I have the faith, I have the belief, based on the history, that the future beings, the superhumans or the superintelligence will do a better job than we do in terms of putting ourselves into others' shoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Let me ask you how and where and if the concept of the technological singularity fit somewhere within your argument. Uh, yes, uh, the technological singularity has become extremely popular and it's uh, definitely have entered the mainstream. I, I found the idea to be very attractive. Uh, but I also see that there's many limitations in this idea of singularity. Uh, let me just mention a couple. First thing is that the, I think the singularity concept is too simplistic. It gives people an illusion that things will just come, just things will just come. And we're gonna be uh, entering a new era and I'm just waiting for my brain to be uploaded. But when you look at the evolutionary history, Nothing is so smooth. So in the book, uh, particularly in chapter 12, I talked about potential technical difficulties of uh, uploading the brain or creating autonomous robots and so on and so forth. I think we're gonna enter on our way to singularity. I think we're gonna enter many, many 
phases of difficulty. Where are we going to face bottlenecks? Where are we going to have a lot of tough choices that is ahead of us? And that's why I think we need a higher goal in order to have the courage to overcome these. Right? So, so to, to summarize this, I think that the picture that singularity paints is a too easy of a picture. And secondly, secondly, I, I, I think the idea of the singularity seems to be uh, exaggerating, seems to be exaggerating in the sense that people say, okay, this is really going to be unprecedented. And this is something really going to be unimaginable. This is something that we cannot really grasp. But I said, no, wait a second. When you look at the cosmic evolutionary history, singularity has happened many, many times before. The latest, singular, the, the latest singularity was, of course, this industrial revolution right? for, 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 the, for the farmers is unimaginable. And when you look back a little bit, other primates, from the perspective of other primates, let alone other animals, what we have been able to do, able to accomplish for them is singularity. So, so this is nothing new. I think this pointing out that this is nothing new will add a lot of comfort and reduce anxiety uh, for many people who really haven't thought about these issues in, 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 a, in, a, in a deep and a comprehensive way. So Ted, tell me a little bit about the timeline that you envision for your evolutionary perspective here? Yes, as a professional economist, I think we're at a critical stage in terms of the global development. Since the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, the global economy has been growing at a very slow pace. And most economists project that we're gonna have a slow growth, income equality is gonna be high, and uh, uh, there's not much hope beyond uh, what we have experienced recently, which is below historical average trend of growth. So I tend to agree with uh, those pro projections, except that I think people are ignoring what's, what's happening on the technological front with the potential of changing human nature. So totally viewing from a, a objective standpoint, when you look at the economic system, you can see that the human nature, right, the human beings have now becoming a bottleneck of economic growth. I love to say that, uh, I love to tell people that uh, in terms of developing human resources, which currently is the most valuable source of economic growth and uh, uh, improving humanity's well-being, in terms of developing human resources, we are still at a hunter-gatherer's age. We don't know. We don't know how to produce and generate better human beings. But that is about to change. So once that changes, there's going to be fundamental changes in terms of the economic structure, and in terms of each individual's fate, and in terms of the competitiveness of different countries. So I think in one of your prior interviews with other scholars, you asked the question about whether the singularity is going to happen in China or it's going to happen in the US. So these are the things that I'm watching very, very closely because I think these are the things that, that's going to matter in the future. Mm -hmm. You're probably referring uh, to my interview with Ben Gertzel. Correct. Yeah. Uh, now, let me ask you this though, since we are 
sort of on the economic topic. Uh, how does capitalism fit within that evolutionary process? Because my one of my my observation is that most economists that I have interviewed on this show or that I've talked to mm. see capitalism the same way that most people see humanity, which is to say mm. as the pinnacle of evolution, right? Mm. I personally, as a philosopher, tend to look at both in the same way too, but not as the pinnacle, but merely as a point in evolution. Therefore, both humanity and capitalism, I would argue, are doomed to go extinct. Eventually, they will go down the dustbin of history. Um, good point. Uh, I will come down to somewhere in between. Yeah. Uh, earlier, we discussed the concept of evolution, and I argue that the concept of evolution is the most important idea that human beings have ever discovered. To the extent that the capitalism, the capital system the, with private uh, property ownership, with uh, rules of law, with the free market exchange, to the extent that the elements of the capitalist society mimic the process of evolution, I think capitalism is going to persist and it's not going to be uh, uh, go extinct. On the other side, when you look at the characteristics of evolution, I think it's changing. I think in increasingly we have more consciousness injected into the conscious evolution. So in the book, I mentioned that we are currently, the world is currently not driven by natural evolution, but, but it's driven by cultural evolution. And the cultural evolution is actually going to continue to evolve into something what I call the conscious evolution. So the cultural evolution is the initial stage of conscious evolution, and the conscious evolution is going to be much, much more powerful than natural evolution. It's also going to be much more sophisticated and powerful than cultural evolution. So to that extent, uh, I tend to agree with you that I think capitalism needs to continue to evolve. When human nature changes, all the concrete elements, specific elements of capitalism will not be able to survive. But a new form of capitalism are going to emerge to go with the new economy in the decades ahead. Yeah, to me, it's inevitable that when humanity changes, and as we know it would, capitalism would have no alternative but to change. But, but also from an evolutionary perspective, we're going from dumber to smarter, generally speaking. Uh, and of course, humanity would be much less intelligent than post-humanity and our biological evolution would be taken over by technological evolution, which is much faster and better by design. So my, mm. my argument would be that likewise, our political economic system or socioeconomic system like capitalism would also evolve from a relatively dumb mm. to much smarter, much mm. more technological and one would be, which would be better by design, I would argue. And when yes. I throw in that word there, mm. I, I go back to my favorite economist, John Maynard Keynes. Uh -huh. So, so uh, of course, at a much newer, much more sophisticated level than the crude sort of, uh, the crudish sort of level of control that they had at the disposal around that time. Mm. But eventually our whole system would be like that, better by design, intelligent, smart, and moving forward with consciousness, if you will, 
or maybe not the, the consciousness of the system, but the consciousness of those post-human beings that will be in charge of that system and will be able to direct it as they see fit. Yes, I cannot agree more uh, with you on, on these points. I totally agree. And I would like to add that what is also going to be new is going to be new motivations. We're not going to be not only going to be making the future intelligent beings more smarter and more knowledgeable and faster, but also they could have new motivations and those new motivations will continue to evolve and the capitalist system will continue had to be co-evolved with new motivations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So you're the first economist who kind of sort of agree, agrees with me because one of the things that surprised me before is that most economists that I've talked to, for them it's easier to see the end of the world rather mm. than the end of capitalism. <laughs> yes, yes. So no wonder people call the, uh, the economics as the dismal science, right? Yeah. And, and I can, yeah, yeah but I tend to be on the, on the optimistic side. Yeah, and, and actually that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed your book is because it didn't read like a book in economics. And, and of course, that's the reason why I'm a fan of John Maynard Keynes, because his books don't read like books of economics, but they read like books of philosophy. And, and, mm -hmm. and yours is, is of, that, of that level. But let me ask you a little bit more sort of specific short-term uh, questions. For example, we know that technology is very disruptive in nature, exponentially growing technology is very disruptive. So mm. how about technological unemployment and all those millions of people that would have to deal or are dealing today with that phenomenon? First of all, do you recognize that there is such a phenomenon and what do you want to say about it? Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it, it is becoming a big problem. And I think going forward, it, it is going to be becoming an even bigger problem. Exactly as I said, that existing human beings are becoming a bottleneck in the current global economy. And there's going to be tremendous pressure to say, are you go with it? If you don't go with the higher requirements that the global economy uh, uh, requires, then you will be obsolete. And uh, for existing human beings, of course, as you know, it's very hard to change. So then uh, we're going to have a lot of transitional pains. And one of my current uh, research area is exactly what you have described, right? How do we deal with technological unemployment and how do we how do we make sure that we strike the right balance, the right balance between providing the right incentives for people to evolve themselves, to accept new technologies, uh, and on the other, other hand, maintain the stability of the current system so that you will not have a disruptive revolution to destroy the foundation of all the technological development. We need both stability and incentives. So how, how, what's, what's the answer to that in the gist of it? Okay, yeah. So, so uh, uh, of course, uh, this is uh, an ongoing uh, research project of mine. This is not discussed in the book. Uh, my, my initial thought is, is very clear. I think, the, my, uh, I think we're, we're going to... Uh, go into a system where the minimal amount of standard li living is going to be guaranteed for every citizen. However, I think there's going to be, society is going to put tremendous psychological pressure for those who wanted to get ahead because we understand that the human needs and desires are really multi-layered. And the higher the level, 
the more difficult to attain. And I think the not everyone is going to be satisfied at a higher level, even though the society for the stability reasons may provide guarantees on the lower level of life desires and needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let me throw another another new sort of disruptive development here and ask you what's your professional take on it as an economist. And that's namely Bitcoin. Mm. What's your take on Bitcoin? Uh, I think it's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, actually, next week uh, we're gonna have. Uh, uh, I'm teaching a course called the Principle of Macroeconomics, and next week we're gonna invite a professor of computer science to guest lecture on this uh, on, on this subject. So I, I also look forward to hear what uh, uh, she has to say. But overall, I think the Bitcoin is a new form of uh, a new form of technology that 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 will continue to evolve. And if the uh, the right macroeconomic environment uh, uh, is appropriate. I think uh, uh, the Bitcoin or similar type of uh, uh, new elect pure electronic uh, medium of exchange is going to survive or even thrive. Uh, but the future is is unknown because we we we're going to face a lot of uncertainties in this era, uh, particularly. Uh, when the central banks are talking about uh, uh, generating uh, uh, necessary inflation uh, in a over-leveraged over world. Now, the pressure, the political pressure for inflation is, is not going to go away uh, in the foreseeable future. So, and that will provide an opportunity for the development of the new, uh, new currencies like a, like a Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh one of the issues that people watching this podcast episode would have to confront uh, as people individually is, okay, what can I do about all of this that we just talked about, that we just discussed? So yes. what, what can you tell people in terms of tips? What can they do about that sort of evolutionary responsibility and potential, transhuman potential that we discussed? Yes. So in, in, in the book, I think it's in uh, chapter uh, in chapter um, uh, 12 and 13, I listed uh, several several things that ordinary people can do. Um, uh, but in, in a nutshell is this. In general, I think we should all support uh, the, the higher goal for humanity. And that matters because regardless of who you are, what kind of position you are, as long as you are a citizen, right, you have a vote, you have a right to express your mind. So, so I think that's important. And secondly, I think we all need to do our, our part, depending on our capabilities, our skills, our knowledge, so on and so forth. So for example, I, 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 in the book, I mentioned the fact that now if you are an artist, and you say, okay, well, I'm not a genetic engineer. How am I going to contribute to designing better human beings? Well, if you're an artist, then there's a lot of things uh, you can do because book, uh, 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 a dense, uh, heavy book like this is not going to be read by many people. But people find it very quick, easy to grasp images. So then what you can do to support the post-human future is creating new forms of art to inspire people. And I think the... Uh, these kind of things, depending on your your unique uh, knowledge and skills, you can contribute big and 
small, we need everyone, everybody to contribute. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have to congratulate you about this, actually, because your book is one of the few books that actually has a specific chapter of, with tips about what the average person can do to mm -hmm. sort of fit or support this kind of cosmic vision that you lay out. And, and, and that's, that's fantastic. So I, I think it's, it's very well done. And, and I think uh, I, I would urge people to read that very carefully because I think we can find our own personal answers there. And, and I mean, yes. I was lucky enough to find my answer five years ago when I started doing this podcast and this blog, but, mm. but it does fit very well as one of the options that you mentioned in the book. So that's, that's nice to see. Ted, unfortunately, our time is coming to a conclusion here. So let me ask you, where can people find more about you and your work? What's the best place? Yes, the best place is uh, I have set up a, a specific website. It's called transhumanpotential.com. And uh, uh, there I am uh, uh, giving uh, free access to the first uh, two chapters of my book. And I'm also starting to write a blog. Uh, where I try to link everyday news events uh, that you hear about, read about, link that to the overarching uh, vision that I have provided uh, in the book called the Cosmic Vision. So, for example, uh, recently I wrote about uh, Ben Bernanke's uh, first public appearance here in Abu Dhabi. So this is my most recent blog. And I also comment on the, uh, the book uh, recently published uh, uh, called The Triple Advantage uh, to say, Okay, what can you make your children successful, right? So, so this is probably uh, every parent's mind. So I try to link these things that you care about into the big vision. So it's, it's again, it's www.transhumanpotential.com. Uh, 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 yeah. In one word. Excellent. And I would link to it, of course. But now we're coming to the final, most important question here, and that is, what is the most important thing, the single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this one hour conversation with you today? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the most important uh, uh, message uh, I think is that whatever we do, uh, we will need to have three conditions that we're comfortable with. First is that we have to know how to do it, right? Second is we have to have a need for it. And third, we have to feel like this is the right thing to do. And many people ask me, oh, okay, your post-human future looks fantastic, but it's so far away. And today, I think in terms of technological advancement, we're closing in on how to do it. And as a professional economist, let me convince you that we absolutely have a economic need to do it, given the slowing economy, aging population, and all the pressures that we're facing today. So we have an economic need to do it. And finally, there is what I call ideological clarity. It is that we are human beings, right? We do things not just because we can do it and we need it, but also we have a reflective mind and think to say, is this the right thing to do? And I feel like so far there hasn't been enough research done in terms of justifying this whole thing, the transhuman future. And I hope my book and my way of thinking fills that void. That void is I'm making an argument 
saying that the transhuman future is something that is the right thing to do, given our understanding of the universe. So this is the message that transhumanism is the right thing to do. When I watch many of your previous po podcasts, a lot of discussion centers around, you know, is the future is going to be so bright, you know, everyone is going to benefit, we're going to super abundance, we're going to live a happy uh, life that's going to never end. Or we're going to discuss the, uh, the existential risk, you know, what are the probabilities that humanity is going to end and so on and so forth. I think those kind of discussions are standing at the low level of perspective. And it be, can be very confusing because you don't know what the future is going to be. So is this the right thing to do, given that there's so much uncertainty, either good or either bad? And my argument is that standing from a higher perspective, the universe have done this thing many, many times before. And now it's the time. And this is the right thing to do from a higher perspective, regardless of our consideration of the benefits and risks. On a higher perspective, this is the right thing to do. Ted, this is a fantastic, fantastic message indeed. And I really appreciate you being with us today. And I think it's also a fantastic point to end our conversation and let us all ponder about the dimensions and the implications of, of that profound message. Thank you very well, thank much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Nicola, to, uh, uh, to talk to me. And uh, uh, I enjoyed it, the, the conversation. Fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm.